All right, just a reminder that uh, men's prayer breakfast is going to be on June the 22nd at 7.30, so I encourage you guys who haven't been able to make it to try to make it. Uh, the food's pretty good. It may not be healthy, but it's really good. <laughs> and then uh, continue to pray for Camp Arete, Vacation Bible School, and then the uh, upcoming trips. Just found out we had another couple sign up for the uh, Egypt trip in December, so that's coming along, and as well as the Greece and then also the Israel tour next year. We've just about gotten to a place where we can get a final final numbers and information on that up on the web. I was talking back and forth with our travel agent today, going through different different um, uh, different options and different things today. So that's all coming together. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll give everybody an opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. This means that we need to confess sin if necessary. We either are living our life according to the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, or we're living our life according to the dictates of our sin nature. When we sin, we break that rapport with God, that fellowship, that uh, closeness, that intimacy with God, and to recover that, we simply admit or acknowledge our sins, and God promises to forgive us of those sins and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that that rapport is restored. It's all grace. It's not based on any kind of legalism or remorse or any uh, human factors. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure you're ready to study the Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we can come together this evening. We're thankful for your grace, your goodness. We're thankful that we live in a free country for the thinking, the foresight, and the wisdom of our founding fathers to establish a nation on the basis of genuine freedom, the impact of biblical thinking on their thinking. And Father, we pray that this might continue. There are so many forces in the world and in this nation that seek to destroy this. And, Father, we know that this is all part of the angelic rebellion and that Satan wishes to destroy freedom, especially freedom of uh, truth, freedom to study your word, freedom to proclaim the gospel. He wishes to shut this down. But, Father, we know that you are in control, and we pray that you might continue to restrain these forces of evil 
so that we might continue to live our lives in peace and carry out our biblical responsibilities uh, as you have described them in Scripture. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Boy, have we got some fun stuff to get into tonight, and it's only the beginning. I've titled this God versus the Chaos Monsters. Now, this is an area of studies I said last time, which we were getting into because of the language in Psalm 89. And that introduces us to this. It's not something that's taught a lot. And when it is taught, it is often taught in a wrong way. We'll get into that tonight. We've been studying what the Bible teaches about God's covenant with David. We are reminded that this covenant that God made with David is an eternal covenant. It promised an eternal house to David. That term means an eternal dynasty, king after king after king, and that there would it would end with an eternal king, which, of course, can only be divine, and an eternal kingdom, that he would establish a kingdom that would be eternal, and that his dominion, his uh, rulership would be eternal, indicated by the phrase, an eternal throne. So one of the longest chapters or longest psalms, not the longest by any means, but one of the longest is Psalm 89, which is a prayer, a prayer that God would fulfill his promises to David to fulfill the Davidic covenant. It's 52 verses, and we began to work our way through this verse by verse, and we realized very early on, starting in verse 5, that the author moves from talking about God and his mercy and faithfulness to David and, as, and that that as the backdrop to this covenant, making it a certainty that God would fulfill the covenant, to introducing an element related to the angels, related to the heavens, and so we see that he is bringing in a dimension to God's covenant with David that connects it to what we usually refer to as the angelic conflict or the satanic rebellion. So it's not just a matter of, of a human dimension, but that, that covenant that God has made with David has a dimension that impacts the angelic conflict. It is related to the angelic majesties and powers and also to what God is doing in working that out in history and his eventual destruction of Satan. And so we see this in the language of verse 5, for example, where we saw in the first line, the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. It's not talking about the physical heaven as stars and space, but is talking about those who inhabit it. And that's seen in the parallel line in the assembly of the Literally, in Hebrew, it's the holy ones, that is, the angels. And this is what we saw as a figure of speech called the metonymy, where one noun is substituted for another, so heaven stands for those who inhabit it. This happens in a number of places in Scripture where the heavens and the earth are called upon to be witnesses. So what that means is those who inhabit the heavens, that is, the angels on the one hand, 
and those who inhabit the earth, that's mankind. So there are two witnesses, mankind and the angels. So by uh, the law says that anything should be confirmed by two witnesses. So those are the two witnesses. So we went through that. We saw that this phrase, the Holy One, in Daniel 4.13 relates to uh, angels. And then in, uh, we went on to look at verses 6 and 7 where those in the heavens are compared to the Bene Elim, the sons of the mighty. So again, we're talking about angels. So what is the role of angels in relation to, to this? We have the angels mentioned in verse 6, then again in verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the holy ones. So it goes back to using that, that language that we saw in verse 5. So it's clearly talking about the angels. And then there is a what appears to be a shift that occurs in verses 9 and 10. 9 makes the statement, you rule the raging of the sea. Okay, this is the term for the salt sea. And often this is, this is, uh, this is mentioned in Scripture and remember, there's not going to be a salt sea in the millennial kingdom in the future age, okay? As opposed, and this is a sign because the salt sea is considered to be a source of chaos, okay? It's referred to in Genesis chapter, chapter 1. Uh, you have uh, Tahom the Deep. And so this is viewed as a source of, of chaos and evil. We'll see the development of this. But this is one of those key words that we need to notice as we go through Scripture. This isn't just talking about the oceans. There is something more, uh, more pernicious about this word. There's something more devilish about this word. Psalm 89.10 goes on to say that God has broken, we read this in English, Rahab. But in Hebrew, it is a different word. So I ask the question, who is this Rahab? It is not the first point, and I've got, about, I've got a number of points we're going to work through here today. Uh, the first point here is that this is not Rahab, the prostitute, in Judges chapter 2. It's spelled differently. This is Rahab. It is the the second... Um, se- excuse me, I got uh, Rahab. This is uh, Rahab. Rahab is... Uh, I got this backwards today in my rush. So uh, this is the proper name. This is the name of Rahab in, Job, in uh, Judges 2. So I'll correct a couple of slides later on. I got this in, got this reversed. But that's the difference that you have here, and it's just the difference between the Hebrew hey and the hate. So Rahav is the name of the person, and Rahav is the name of this creature who is cut into pieces. This is exceptionally violent. We see that Rahav is cut into pieces, and Rahav is parallel to your enemy. So you have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm, always a anthropomorphism for God's power, God's omnipotence. So these are things that we covered last time. And what I want to do here is I want to step back 
in this class before we before we dig down into this and broaden out our study a little bit so that we're picking up a number of other elements that seem to be often related. So we have the use of this term, Rahav, about four times in the Old Testament. We have it in Job 9.13, Job 26.12, our passage in Psalm 89.10, and in Psalm 51.9. The root meaning of this word has to do with arrogance. The verb is used, we went into that last time, the verb occurs only four times, and it signifies storming at or storming against something. So it, it pictures someone who is arrogant and someone who is in an attack mode, storming against, and we know this is storming against God. Now when it comes to the noun, there are these four verses that are important, and I put them up here because what I want to do tonight, tonight's sort of a survey of all these issues, and then we start drilling down in this because this is, A, it's complicated, B, the, mud, the waters have been muddied by poor scholarship, and there's a few people who seem to really take the Word of God uh, as inerrant and infallible and that, that it is true, and it is the basis for everything else. And so we have to look at that. So it's, we'll start off in Job. Now remember Job, Yov in the Hebrew. Uh, Job is the earliest book, I believe, and many believe, in that was written. It was the first book to be written. It doesn't mention anything about Israel. doesn't mention anything about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. doesn't mention anything about about Israel. Um, uh, Jerusalem doesn't mention these things that are so prominent when you get into the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And so many conservatives believe that Job was not only the first book that was written, but it could have been written a hundred or two hundred years before Moses wrote the Pentateuch. We don't know exactly when it when it was written. But Job lives in the land of Uz, and Uz is a is stated, or at least a man by the name of Uz is stated as something of a contemporary of Isaac. Okay, so it's in the patriarchal period, but he is Job is not Jewish. He's not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a Gentile believer in that general time period. So there's a lot of things that are said here. Uh, Job 9.13, and I'm going to quote these more from the NASB because the NASB translated the name Rahav consistently, whereas in the King James it used some other phrase that hides the issue. So Job 9.13, God will not turn back his anger beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. I need to change the spelling on these. Uh, Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab, whereas the New King James calls it the allies of the proud. Well, Rahab is a name that is applied to a person or personage, not necessarily human, but is applied to a personage. Remember, it is Rahab who is cut 
to pieces by God, as stated in uh, Psalm 89, uh, 9 and 10. So here's a reference to the allies or the helpers of Rahab, the arrogant one, because that's the core meaning of the word. So I asked the question last time, who, who in all of history is the arrogant one? It's Satan, because this word Rahab always has the article with it, indicating a specific person. Job 26.12, he, this is talking about God, he quieted the sea with his, with his power. Now, this is an interesting verb here because it can mean he quieted or calmed, and that, that, I believe that's the way it should be translated, or it can mean he made something turbulent. This word can mean, has two different meanings that are opposites of each other. So you really have to look at the context and have a theological framework. And what I believe this is saying is God it brings order to chaos. Okay, He He is the one who brings order and controls the sea. Now the sea here is that word yam. It's the the word for the salt sea. But what we'll learn is in uh, Canaanite religion, yam is the god of the sea, and they have a myth. About uh, uh, about how the sea god is uh, is conquered. Okay, we'll get into that late, later and why that's significant. But I I want you to notice these terms that keep being used: Yom and Rahav, and then Job twenty six twelve. And the second line says, "And by his understanding, he shattered Rahav." So God shatters Rahav here. What's, what's that all about? What is going on here? Uh, the shatter, and when does this happen? These are questions we have to address. Psalm 89.10, which is the one that we're looking at, you yourself crushed Rahav like one who is slain. See, that seems parallel with Job 26.12, the shattering of Rahav. When did this happen? Um, Isaiah 51.9, uh, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. So, so that first line is all talking about God's power, using the anthropomorphism of God's arm, relating to his power, his strength, his omnipotence. And then the second line, awake is in the days of old, the generations of long ago. So this puts a time factor on here that takes us back maybe into eternity past. Uh, was it not you who cut... Rahav in pieces. So is this talking about some conflict between God and this Rahav that goes back uh, to a more ancient time? And then the parallel is, it was, was it not you who cut Rahav in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Okay, in the uh, NKJV, it's, uh, it's, you have Rahav here, and then uh, dragon, here is the Hebrew word tanin. So what we've seen is you've got this, this entity. Often the sea simply refers to the sea. The yam simply refers to the salt sea. But other times it is an allusion to this power that is represented by the chaos of, of the salt sea. And then we looked at the, uh, at the word uh, related to uh, we saw C, we saw Rahav, Yam, and now here we have Tanin. And this is translated dragon. 
And in, and this is a word that we run into other times. Sometimes it's just translated sea creatures or sea monsters. But according to um, Robert, I believe it was a Robert Gordis commentary. He's a Jewish rabbi, very famous scholar, wrote an excellent commentary on the Hebrew text of Job that he he states that the Greek, the old Greek translation of the Hebrew text translated this as drakon, which is the word dragon. That's the Greek word for dragon. Now, so all of these kinds of things are, are taking uh, taking place here in 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 these this overview of these four passages. But this is all that we have on this, and uh, shows up a little bit later on. So the third point is that we have se- several of these key passages are used in, or several of these key words are used in similar passages. So we have the word tanin, which is often translated, as I just pointed out in the Greek, ancient Greek versions, as dracon, the dragon. Sometimes it's translated sea creature or serpent. Other terms that we have that comes up, sometimes tanin is translated as a beast or dragon. You have also this word leviathan, that shows up several times in the Old Testament. Uh, what is Leviathan and Rahav and also the sea? So these these entities, these words related to these, what are usually classified as just sea monsters, or these these ancient monsters who fought against um, the gods who wanted to bring order and stability. You have this conflict in the mythology of the ancient world between these these forces of chaos versus the forces of order. And we'll look at the significance of that in just a minute. So these key ideas, though, play out throughout Scripture. So what I want to do here in the next few slides is go to the end of history, which is Revelation, and look at how these terms show up over and over again when we get into the end game in Revelation. So... Revelation 12. Turn with me in your Bible to Revelation 12. Revelation 12 and 13 use these terms again and again as you go through the, go through the description. Now, remember, Revelation 12 and Revelation 13 come in after the, there's sort of a pause that we get into when we get to Revelation chapter uh, 10 and 11. Chapter 10 talks about this mighty angel with the little book. This happens after the, the uh, you have first the uh, 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 seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments, and then there's sort of this interlude, which talks about different things that are going on during the first half of the tribulation and talks about this uh, mighty angel with the little book and then the two witnesses who are prominent in the first half, and then they are executed by the Antichrist uh, uh, halfway through at the midpoint, then they are miraculously resurrected, and then we come, after these things, we come to the seventh trumpet, which opens up in its seven bowls. Then in verse uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13, we're going to get another overview of what has been happening and chapter 12 introduces us to what is happening within the framework 
of, of biblical history and tells us what's happening with the, with the angels. So at verse 1 we read, Now a great sign appeared in, uh, in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Okay, this is a direct allusion where all those symbols come from is the dream that Joseph had back in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. Okay, and so this is talking about the, the, uh, the son is, uh, is Jacob, the mother's Leah, the 12 stars are the 12 tribes of Israel. Then um, you have this oh, the woman who is clothed with them. Okay, the woman is actually uh, represents Israel. The woman is Israel. She is going to give birth. She cries out in labor and gives birth. And then you switch to a second sign. The second sign appears in heaven. And this is what the verse I have up on the screen. A great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Now, to understand that, you have to go back to Daniel chapter chapters uh, 7 and 8 to understand about the ten kingdoms that are, are organized under the Antichrist, and he is going to take uh, three of them, and he rips these, the, the, the ten horns there in Daniel uh, Daniel. Uh, seven, and he rips three of them out by the roots, so he has to violently conquer them, and so then he puts together this ten-nation con- confederacy that's the revived Roman Empire. It's seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems, because he conquers the other three. And then in verse 4 we read, we still don't know who the dragon is. He's the power behind all this. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. Now, where do we find out who the stars of heaven are? Well, we go back to Job 38, 4 through 7, where they're referred to as the morning stars. So these are the, the angels. So the dragon's tail takes a third of the stars of heaven. So this is Satan and he induces a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion. And the dragon stands before the woman. The dragon is hostile to Israel. All anti-Semitism derives from Satan. Satan seeks to destroy Israel. So the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. He wanted to stop the Messiah, stop the cross. Then we skip down to verse 7, we read, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels... What is the rest of that? In 12, uh, 7, the dragon and his angels fought. In verse 9, the dragon is identified. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Now, this verse is so critical. This thought is repeated again in, in uh, chapter 13. It identifies Satan as the great dragon, as the serpent of old. So you, you get this c- combination now. A dragon is a reptile, a serpent is a reptile, and there is a train of thought that might have some accuracy to it that we think of a snake in the garden. But that reptile in the garden may have been much more glorious than what we think of as just 
you know, a python or a rattlesnake or something of that nature, that this is the dragon, the, rep, the reptile that is the enemy of God. So we have these four titles connected together, dragon, serpent of old, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. That defines things. Then in Revelation 13.1, you have John is standing on the sand of the sea. Now remember that because you've got two ideas here. You've got the sand and you've got the sea. This is the yam. This is the salt sea that is chaotic. It is the salt sea that is associated with the demonic powers. It's got more of a, of a corporate I- identity to it when it's used in this way. And God, in, in, I forget the passage. We'll look at it in a minute. Uh, I believe it's in Isaiah that God says he establishes the borders or the limitations on the, on the yam with the sand of the sea. It's a picture that God ultimately controls chaos and controls evil. So we see this picture. I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, on his head ten crowns. Well, we just saw that picture. That's the, the dragon. So these are the empires that are energized by the, by the dragon, by Satan. And then we have the phrase, the beast again, in verse 2. So what we're seeing here is we're seeing dragon and beast, and the sea. These are the same images that we go back and we find in Job, and we find in the Psalms, and we find in Isaiah, we find in Jeremiah, and uh, in in Habakkuk. Uh, Daniel, and it's similar vision. So you can't interpret Revelation 13 without understanding Daniel chapter 7. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, the yam. And out of the yam come these four great beasts. These are the evil empires. So the salt sea is a picture of the the source of evil. And it's not just it's not just the ocean. It, it, It represented in Hebrew thinking chaos and evil, and unpredictability, and destructive force. So it is chaos. Revelation 13.4, the people worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast and said, who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? Now we're going to skip ahead to Revelation 19, and... In Revelation 19, we have a reference. We have Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, coming to the earth to end the absolute chaos that has erupted as a result of these kingdoms and these beasts. Verse 15 says, Revelation 19:15 says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. I want you to remember those passages we talked about God slicing up Rahab, okay? You've got to make sense of all these images and all these things. They're all related. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. So this is Messiah who is coming to execute the plan of God in bringing judgment on the earth to end the rule of evil. 
Revelation 19.16, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so Revelation 19.19, John says, I saw the beast, and then he explains who the beast is. It's the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his armies. Then Revelation 19.20, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence and, and those who received the mark of the beast. So we still have all these images of beast and, uh, and chaos. And then Revelation 19.21, the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Then we come to Revelation 20, verse 1. Satan, the dragon, is consigned to the bottomless pit. Verse 2 says he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So it makes it really clear that the dragon is one of the images God uses for Satan. And then at the end, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire of brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And then verse 2013, now, I'm not going to stake anything on this. I'm going to make a, a, an observation here. In light of the use of the sea as the source of evil and that which controls the domain uh, of Satan, now we see the sea gave up the dead who were in it. I don't think this is just what the Navy thinks about when those who have died at sea, that this is now giving up those who have drowned in the ocean. The sea has this negative evil connotation. These are those who have been controlled by the forces of evil. And so if, if, if the sea fits within this, this pattern of imagery that we have throughout Scripture, the sea gave, gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the death dead who were in them. So death, Hades, and the sea are all these negative areas that are associated with the curse of sin. Now, having looked at all of that, everybody's thinking, wow, we haven't quite gone through all of this before, have we? No, we haven't. So the next thing I want to do is go back to start taking us through the Scripture. And I haven't thought of a better way to do this than just to go it chronologically because I'm about three steps ahead of y'all, but y'all are catching up real fast now. So um, I haven't figured out how to put this together in a different way, so I think it's better to just take it chronologically as God revealed it progressively uh, through the Scripture. And so I want to go back to the first book that's written, which is Job. And I want to point out what Job says using this same language and these same images. In Job 1, 6, and 7, also in 2, 1 through 3, we have the mention of Satan, the accuser of God. There was a day when the sons of God, now that is not the same phrase that we have for the sons of the mighty in in Psalm 89, that's the B'nai Ha'elim, which is not a term for God, and here it's B'nai Ha'elohim. 
Both of the terms, though, do talk about the angels. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said, from where do you come? Satan said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on. In other words, and so we see this courtroom scenario that's an adversarial relationship between Satan, the adversary, Satan, that's the meaning of the word, and the Lord. So that's one terminology that we use. We find it here in Job. The very first book of the Bible talks about Satan. The very last book talks about the defeat and destruction of Satan. Job 3, 8. May those, Job says, May those curse it who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. Who's Leviathan? How many of you all have read through Job and you read Leviathan and you go, well, what's that? Now, if you read in many of your commentaries, including books like the Bible Knowledge Commentary and others, they'll say, well, this is a crocodile. This is a large reptile. Okay, but I'll show you why that's wrong uh, as we go through this. There's something else going on here. Uh, Leviathan is also mentioned in Job 41.1. So we'll look at that. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? So we'll talk about each of these things as we go through this. Job 7.12, he says, Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? And he's saying to God, Am, am, am I like the uncontrollable chaotic sea that you're going you're gonna to hedge me in, give me a boundary? Or a sea serpent. Now that's how it's translated. It's the word tanin. We're going to see this is translated as sea creatures. This is translated as sea monsters. It's various things. And each context, though, I think we have to look at each context to see that which it's describing. Okay? So you can't just say, well, the tanin equals this. I think in some cases, the tanin equals the forces of Satan, the demons. In other cases, it, 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 it's almost the same as Rahab. So we'll have to work our way through those. Uh, Job 9, 8. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Now think about that imagery here. It's talking about the power of God, and it's, it's clearly creation language. And it says he spreads out the heavens and then he treads. This is a language of of conquest and control and power. He treads on the waves of the sea. Does that remind you of anything in Scripture? Yeah, I'll think a little bit about Jesus walking on the water when it's a stormy night. Okay, it's showing God's power over creation, but it also shows if the sea, if the yam is, is this source of chaos and evil in the world, it's showing that ultimately God controls the chaos and he controls uh, the demons. Job 9, 13, all, all in this same little section there in Job 9, says in the New King James says, God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. And that ignores the fact that the word for proud is Rahab. The NET gets it right. God does not restrain his anger. So it's talking about God's justice. Under him, the helpers of Rahab lie crushed. So we're going to guess that maybe Rahab 
as an entity, because it's got the definite article, is another way of talking about Satan, the arrogant one, okay? Under him, the helpers of the arrogant one lie crushed. That seems to make a little more sense. We're going to skip ahead to Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is written 800 years or so after Job, eight or 900 years after Job. And, and in Isaiah 27.1, we're going to have to look through these passages, uh, the, the chapter, the first five verses. In that day, and whenever you read in, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, when it says, in that day, what is it referring to about 95% of the time? Yeah, the day of the Lord the end of the tribulation period. In that day, the Lord with his severe sword. What sword is that? Did we read about that in Revelation 19? The word of the Lord, it comes out of the mouth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. So it looks like in that verse, Leviathan is another name for Satan. It is used with a definite article. Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and then it says, and he, that's talking about uh, the Lord, will slay the reptile that is in the sea. So we have Tanin here, the sea monster, but this is not the same as the Leviathan. So this is talking about the corporate entity of evil that resides in the yam, in that source of chaos. Now, that's all by way of illustration, because what I've done is I want you to see that all these terms related to beast, leviathan, the sea, the dragon, Satan, all are used extensively throughout the book of Revelation, talking about the end times and helping us to understand how God is bringing an end to the rule of evil. And that's what happens during the tribulation period. And that those terms that are used throughout Revelation didn't originate there. They don't derive their meaning from that text. They derive the meaning from the fact that going back to the very first book that's ever uh, recorded in the Bible uses those same images. Now, where did they get those images? That's that's sort of the $60,000 question here when it comes to biblical hermeneutics. So before we go forward, we have to talk a little bit about what happens in, in biblical hermeneutics and how it has uh, really impacted interpretation, not only liberal interpretation, but it impacts conservative evangelical hermeneutics. This is why uh, when you get into some passages like the one I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, when we were talking about the uh, the, uh, Bible knowledge commentary and talking about Leviathan is a crocodile, is that what's really going on here? Okay, so I want to give you a whole bunch of points now where we're going to talk about liberal or what I will call human viewpoint theology, because it's not just liberalism. It is man's attempt to explain reality apart from God. Okay, so that can that affects any kind of paganism, whether you're talking about the animism of some Stone Age tribe 
or whether you're talking about ancestor worship of Buddhism and the Chinese, or whether you're talking about uh, Hinduism, Mohammedism, any of these other world religions to secular humanism, atheism, whatever, they all have to explain these questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Everybody has to explain that. And so human viewpoint comes up with uh, sort of simplistic explanations that are classified as myth and legend for more primitive early, uh, more primitive uh, societies and cultures and even uh, more sophisticated cultures to uh, the, the sophisticated explanations of modern evolution. Okay, it's just a modern evolution is just a myth to explain how we got here, why we're here, and where we're going on the basis of the rejection of God, that there is no God and there's no purpose or meaning in life. Everything just happened by chance. And so who you are is just a cosmic accident of protoplasm. You're really nothing. You're no different in your significance than a rock or, or a mud ball. Okay, you're just nothing more than slime. Okay, you've just something accidentally happened a few million years ago and ended up with you, but you, you're just the son of slime. That's it. Nothing more. And, um, and so there's, if that's who you are, then life has no meaning because there's no meaning to something that is purely material. See, in human viewpoint thinking and evolution and what controls modern science is that, that, psychology is it doesn't deal with an immaterial soul nobody there's no such thing as that which is immaterial everything is controlled by your dna everything's controlled by certain chemical uh, reactions in your body there's no soul there's really no volition all of this is just um is, is just how we phenomenologically explain things so if if we're nothing more than slime and we have no meaning and purpose to what we're doing now, then there's no real basis for anybody to talk about right or wrong because it just is. Everything must be okay. And so it's the total destruction of morality and the total destruction of law. It just will lead to what? Anarchy and chaos. And then what's the end result? The end result is when you die, you, that's it. It's over with. There's, you're just nothingness again, and it just goes on. So you have these two competing views, the human viewpoint systems that m mankind has developed to explain the answer to those questions, and the divine viewpoint, which is what's expressed in the Scripture. We only have two options. One is to completely deny the Bible to be true or to completely accept what the Bible says is true. There's no middle ground. You can't say, well, I'm going to believe most of the Bible. Well, what most of the Bible? Who's going to make the decision as to what is true and what might not be true? Who's going to make that decision? Who is knowledgeable enough, wise enough to decide this is part of the Bible and that's not? Because all of the so-called experts and intellectuals in the last two or three hundred years can't agree on any of that. Everybody has a different opinion. We even have a, had an early president, Thomas Jefferson, who came up with his own Bible. He took his razor blade out, and he removed every reference to anything supernatural or miraculous in the Bible to come up with his version of the Bible. But the next guy that comes along may have other verses that he leaves in, 
Other verses he takes out. So who's to make that ultimate decision? So let's break it down very systematically. Human viewpoint is a thought system that's based on the rejection of the biblical God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I could expand that and make it the biblical God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. That's what distinguishes the God of the Bible. He is the creator of everything, and he stands outside of of creation. There is that creator-creature distinction. So human viewpoint is a thought system that rejects that God. There's no such entity, and we have to, therefore, make it up on our own. Second point, thus human viewpoint by definition must reconstruct reality, has to redefine reality. And it, when, once you redefine reality, you're divorced from reality. You're no longer living in a real world. By some definitions, that's psychosis. Psychosis is the idea that you can construct your own reality and then you live as if that's, that's true. Those people go into an institution when they get that far. But the human race almost as a whole is that way. They've rejected God, and they've created their own reality, and they live as if it is actually true. This is called suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness in Romans 1.18. They reject God, and then they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Third point, thus human viewpoint must challenge the authority and truth of the Bible at every step. Every component of their thought system must be a counterpoint to every point that's in the Bible. It is a complete remake of reality. So that's the idea here, at every step, at every point. Now, this is what your children are taught in school. This is what every all of you were taught this to some degree. Not one person here was not taught this, this framework, you might not have identified it. It might not have been as extreme 30, 40, or 50 years ago, but it certainly was there. I mean, I caught this when I was in college. I, I can even remember uh, some English teachers teaching elements of this or at least explaining it as part of some of the things we read in literature as far back as, as seventh or eighth grade. It was, it was all there. Where do you think the hippie generation came from if people weren't teaching these ideas to them when they were in elementary and junior high school? They were, they were the beat generation. They were rejecting all, all authority. So we have to understand this if we are to, going to strengthen our own families and our children and our grandchildren. In uh, human viewpoint, under the fourth point, in human viewpoint, the ancient stories created by ancient peoples to explain their origin and the meaning of life created legends and myths. And in their legends and myths, they have heroes, they have those who are fighting for order, and those that are fighting against order. And they're trying to explain all of life through these, as usually the forces of nature. So they reject God, and in his place, they created nature deities. You have like Zeus or Jupiter, who are the god, and Baal, the god of storms, the god of thunder, the god of lightning, 
And in agrarian societies, the god of storms and lightning brings rain. Then the crops grow, and you get more income because you have more crops, so it leads to prosperity. If you don't have rain, it brings chaos, it brings economic uh, depression and chaos because your crops don't grow. So it's all about basically uh, prosperity versus poverty. It's it is a pre, pre, it precedes Marxism as an economic explanation of reality. See, Marx didn't just come up; he just was the latest twist on this age-old uh, myth of prosperity versus poverty. Romans one twenty one says, "Because although they knew God, and this is historical, it's relating back to what happens after the flood." Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile or empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They may have what we call vast intellectual capabilities, but it's empty because it's not true. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They have two or three PhDs. They have great awards for things that they have accomplished, but because they are living in a fake view of the world, they are fools. They're living as God does not exist. That's why the psalmist said, uh, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. When When you deny the existence of God, then you become a fool. And they, verse 23, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. What are they doing? They're rejecting the God who created everything, and in his place they're worshiping the things he created. They're worshiping nature. They're worshiping the creatures. They're worshiping the animals and the forces of nature. Fifth thing is human viewpoint claims that the Bible, which was first written down between, let's say, roughly 1600 B.C., so I would assign a date for Job of around anywhere from 1600 back to about 18 or 1900. Uh, Job is written then uh, to 1400, which is 1406 is when we know the Pentateuch, the Torah, was written by Moses uh, while they're 40 years in the wilderness, and the conquest takes place about 1406. So during that period, the earliest books of the Bible are written, Job and the five books of Moses. Their view is that because that's written so late in human history, it's it really has its source not in God, but in all of these previous myths and legends. So the Bible is just a book like all of the other stories. You read, you go to the store, you get books on Roman mythology, you get books on Greek mythology, all of these kinds of things, and uh, the Bible's no different. It's just a book just like that. It's not about God revealing himself to mankind. It is about man's experiences with something mystical that he identifies as God, okay? So what their claim is, is that the Bible simply reshapes and retells the ancient myths rather than receiving any outside input from God or any divine being. 
Okay, the sixth point is that the presupposition of human viewpoint, presupposition is an assumption you bring to the evidence, okay? And it's deeply held. You may not even think it through in your, in your mind. You just hold it with, with, with a sincerity and a passion and conviction that cannot be shaken by evidence, Let's take a case. Uh, one of my seminary professors used this all the time, and I've stolen it from him because that's what past, pastors are and preachers are, is they're basically plagiarists. She so said, you have a man who is deeply, deeply uh, convinced that he's dead. He's really psychotic. He believes he's dead, and he's living like he's dead. And so he goes to a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist begins to work with him and what the psychiatrist wants to do is convince him that living things bleed. Dead things do not bleed. And so for months they talk about this. They have little videos, YouTube videos, and and little experiments where they go to uh, deal with, in the laboratory. They're dead animals, and he pricks the dead animals, and they don't bleed, and he pricks the live animals, and they bleed. They go down to the uh, morgue, and he pricks dead bodies in the morgue and they don't bleed and he uh, pricks a couple of workers that are there who are alive and they bleed and then he turns around very quickly and he pricks this guy who thinks he's dead and he bleeds and the man looks down at his hand and he's bleeding and he says how about that dead people bleed after all he's got a controlling presupposition and evidence doesn't change it unless there's an outside force at work. So the presupposition of human viewpoint is anti-supernaturalism. God does not actually speak or act in human history. There's no evidence anywhere that there's a God. We don't believe there's a God, and you can't prove there's a God, so God doesn't exist. So for them, the Bible isn't a communication from God to man. It is just man's record of his experiences with what he thinks is God. As a result of that, the Bible didn't originate these creation stories and the stories of the flood and other things. The Bible just borrowed that from these other myths. You look at mythology, they all have similar stories. They have creation stories. They have origin of evil stories like Pandora's box. They have, um, and you find these, they're somewhat similar in Egyptian myths and Babylonian myths, Greek myths, Roman myths, all of these different things. And they say, well, Moses just borrowed from these myths. He borrows these ideas. Now, liberals come out, and when they see these phrases like Leviathan and Rahav and, and the sea and everything, they just look at that and say, see, they just borrowed that from all this other mythology. You have all these themes in that mythology. See, the Bible's no different from anything else. The sad point is, is that when you read some conservatives, uh, they take those, say, they, they modify those views, but they will say, see, Moses is borrowing from a Canaanite myth here. Or they will look at Genesis 1. And when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, preceding me was a professor named uh, Bruce Waltke. Uh, Bruce Waltke had, uh, at, I believe it was at the same time, had two te uh, teacher aides. One was Charlie Clough. 
Charlie wrote his master's thesis on the Genesis flood as a worldwide historical event. It wasn't a local flood. Waltke didn't like that at all. His other uh, student at the time was Alan Ross. So hopefully Alan Ross will be our speaker at the next Chafer conference. Neither one of these guys followed Waltke in these views. Ross did a little bit in his view of creation, but not to the degree that Waltke did. But you find this throughout the evangelical world. It's gotten worse. See, Waltke basically argues that the, some of the language in, in Genesis 1 is borrowed from uh, Canaanite myth and Mesopotamian myth. Now you have wackos at Dallas Seminary who are teaching under the guise of intellectual scholarship that they borrowed from Egyptian. They just came out of Egypt, so they borrowed it from Egyptian mythology. And so this, this then is the problem because when you try to do research on these terms like the deep, in, in which is Tahome, which is a cognate of the name of the chaos goddess, the goddess of the sea in uh, uh, Babylonian religion, Tiamat. Okay, Tahome, Tiamat, you see a relationship there. So they all, almost always you have people scholars, even conservatives who are saying some of this is borrowed from Canaanite or Babylonian or Egyptian mythology. But point eight, divine viewpoint states that even though the Bible is not written until around 1500 BC, there were earlier records going back to creation. You read through Genesis. This is the record of the generation of Noah, uh, of Adam. Of the uh, first one is the creation, and then Adam, and then Noah, and so all the way through. And so there were records that Moses had. So you have an actual history that is written down in Genesis that has been known since the Garden of Eden, and the biblical view is that the, this is point number nine, is that the myths of the pagans w- were corruptions of an original historical event and record that was known. It's what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, God created and everything f- was accurate in, re- accurately recorded in the Bible, and then those who rejected God con- uh, corrupted those stories and created the myths and the legends, but the truth of the Bible was first, and it was the myths and legends who are borrowing and distorting from the Bible. So human viewpoint claims that the Bible borrowed from Egyptian, Canaanite, and Babylonian myth rather than that these myths <coughs> uh, rather that, that these myths distorted and corrupted what actually happened is recorded in the Bible. So in human viewpoint, the stories of the Bible are the result of an evolution of mythology, an evolution of religion. So under point 10, the ancient myth texts are equal in all areas to the Bible because their assumptions are God does not speak, so ancient myths are just as valid as the, as the Bible. Why should we prefer the Bible? They believe God does not speak, never has spoken, never will speak because there is no God. Therefore, there's no objective truth. Truth is whatever you make it out to be, whatever you want it to be. And in third, human reason and empiricism are absolute, not God, not the Bible. That is the bedrock of the culture war that we're in the middle of, right there. And until there is a cultural shift 
where the culture does not believe these three things, it will only get worse. The only thing that will change it is not the election of a completely Republican Congress or a completely Republican Senate or a completely conservative judiciary or a, a completely conservative, whoever your ideal politician is, he's still a sinner because the people are of the sea. They, their thinking is chaotic and corrupt, and until that changes, this culture will not change. The 11th point is, uh, in divine viewpoint, the Bible gives us the actual history. For example, the heroes that come, the men of renown, they're called, in Genesis 6, you have a group of fallen angels, the sons of God, who come down, put, are able to transform their immaterial bodies to material bodies and assume physical capabilities like procreation, and they intermarry and have sexual relations with the daughters of women, I mean, the, the, the daughters of man, and the result is that they have these half-breed offspring that are called the men of renown, the Nephilim, the giants in Genesis chapter 6. And so that becomes the background for these great men of renown, these great heroes in the myth stories. You have Hercules, Prometheus, uh, Pandora, and Pandora's box. All of these, many, many others, are, are half, they're half-breeds, they're half-god, half-man. They're really half demon, half man. And this changes the makeup. It was a genetic attack on the human race. We've studied all this before. So this is the last point. These myths developed combat myths to explain the evil in the world. So that in the Babylonian system, you had Marduk, typo there, Marduk versus Tiamat. Marduk is the god who would bring fertility and order. Tiamat brings chaos and sterility or famine. The deep, it's the chaotic ocean. In the Canaanite religion, it's Baal, the storm god, versus the sea, the yam, that's the source of chaos and destruction. In Egypt, it was Horus versus Seth. In Greece, it's Apollo versus the... Puthanos. Now, sometimes you'll read that written P-Y because when you translate the Upsilon in Greek, it is often transliterated as a Y, so it's spelled Puthanos, Pythanos. So, but it's Puthanos. It's an Upsilon. The Python. So what is it? What is a Python? It's a serpent. Have we run into that in the, the serpent in the Bible? So Apollo's going to bring order and against the chaos that's brought by the serpent. So it's, also, it's fertility. Fertility brings what? Prosperity versus chaos and sterility, which brings, which brings poverty. So all of this is to help us understand that, that this is the human viewpoint, liberal, liberal theology, liberal theological explanation and what they're going to do is they're going to read these terms, Leviathan and uh, Tanin and Rahab, and they're going to read all those terms, and they're going to say, see, these are mythological terms, and the writers of the Bible are just borrowing and adapting from mythology. Rather than looking at them and saying, okay, these terms and these concepts represent creatures that were, that were designed by God, created by God, Nothing exists that God didn't create, and they 
are, are become the metaphor to describe the evil of Satan, the person of Satan, the fall of Satan, God's destruction of Satan. And so we don't learn about them by referring to mythology. We learn about them by working our way carefully through these passages of Scripture because they will help us understand uh, what is going on in all of history. And so we'll come back. That That's what's loaded in that phrase. God just cuts to pieces Rahab in in Psalm 89, 9 and 10. That's related to the Davidic covenant. It is the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant who is going to bring about that destruction of evil. So all of that is loaded into this imagery that we're seeing in these verses that relate to the angels and the sons of the Elim and Rahab right here in this section of Psalm 89. And that's usually not something that anybody catches when they're reading through that in the English. So we'll get into it in a lot more detail next week, tracing through all of these things. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that we can dig into your word and that we have many scholars who have done the spade work before. And sadly, today that is often rejected But, Father, we know that we must understand your word as what you have revealed to us and that through these images you are teaching us many things about the nature of evil, the origin of evil, and the ultimate destruction of evil. And we're thankful that evil is under your control and is not just out there randomly doing whatever it can do, even though it may seem that way to us at times. And, Father, we pray, we are thankful that we can have confidence in you and that you are working out your plan. And even though we may not understand it or perceive it, and we may see the chaos around us and feel threatened by it, we know that we are under your protection. And so we should always have confidence and relax and trust in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.